Good morning, Crossroads. And yes, Happy New Year. It is. We'll see you next year, next week, right? I'm sorry, that's a very played out joke. Just want to remind you right now, go ahead and grab the communion that's on the tables in the back and the sides if you've got a second. Um, we'll take communion together after the sermon today, as well as uh, would you take a moment to fill out the connection card that's in the bulletin? Uh, you can place that in the offering boxes that are located on the wall. There's a little brown box over there with a red sign above it. And put that as well as any offerings you may have in there. We're actually going to start a little different this morning. We're going to stand up and wish each other a happy new year. So go ahead and uh, find somebody to do to say hi to.
sing a little louder. Yes, sing a little louder. And sing a little louder. Oh, sing a little louder. And sing a little louder. Yes, sing a little louder. And sing a little louder. Yes, sing a little louder. In the presence of my enemies. So sing a little louder. seated and I'll pray over us. Father, we just thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity for a new year. And sometimes that brings within us a desire to do some changes. And uh, God, I hope you're at the center of most of our hearts when it comes down to it. I hope that you're at the center of all of our hearts when we decide that we want to follow you more fully than we did last year. So God, just uh, equip us with your Holy Spirit. It starts right now here today to be able to just grow closer to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Uh, you may or may have not noticed that I'm not Kurt. And for those of you who may not have noticed that, it might be time to get some glasses. It's okay, I won't make fun of you. Maybe Kurt will when he's, uh, when he's here next week, but I won't make fun of you. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, but on, um, or not October, December 28th, this past Thursday, there was an Oklahoma game, and I think Kurt asked me to preach because Oklahoma ended up losing pretty bad, and so I think he knew in advance he was going to need this time to mourn, so here I am. But uh, in all honesty, it's really nice uh, to be up here. Uh, usually I don't get, uh, get the chance to talk with you guys and, and chat with you guys because I'm usually upstairs. And so I'm really grateful to be able to see your guys' faces and hopefully have some conversation afterward. Uh, but to get started with, uh, with today, I want to ask the question, what makes our dreams impossible? What makes our dreams impossible? There was a small town in the kingdom of Israel uh, known by the name of Bethlehem. In this small town, uh, there was a man that had uh, about seven or eight sons, depending on uh, where you look in the Bible, uh, by the name of Jesse. Uh, see, Jesse was a farmer in the time of ancient Israel uh, under the king of Saul. Saul was the very first king of Israel. And 
Saul wasn't necessarily the best king that Israel had or ever will have. He made a lot of mistakes and eventually God knew that some, uh, some changes needed to be made. And so he rebuked Saul and uh, was about to take away the kingship away from Saul. And he raised up a prophet, a prophet by the name Samuel, and gave him a vision to go to the town of Bethlehem, talk to the man by the name of Jesse, and meet with his sons, because the next king of Israel would be found within the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel, being a, being a good prophet, he does as the Lord commanded him. He goes to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse, and he meets one-on-one with the sons, with the expectation that he is about to find and anoint the next king of Israel. A remarkable time to be alive. And one by one, the sons come forward. And each one of Jesse's sons, they're, they're good looking, they're strong, they have everything that it seems to take or look like to be king. But as each son walked up, Samuel sent them away. As each son came up, God told Samuel, this is not the one. Because he might look like a king, but I do not judge based off of outward appearance, but by the appearance of the heart. He might look like king, but he does not have the heart of a king. And I'm assuming this was probably a pretty long day for Samuel. And he was probably pretty frustrated, because he was told that the next king of Israel would be amongst these sons, but there's no king among them. God has said no to every single one that was considered able for the crown. And so I think with a little bit of sass, I think he has the right to have a little bit of sass. And maybe, you know, he popped his hip a little bit, you know, had a little bit of attitude. But he asked the question to Jesse, is this all the sons you have? Well, lo and behold, there was still one son, the name David. See, David um, was working in the field. He was with the sheep, watching the sheep. He wasn't even considered good enough to be in the possible selection of people that could become king. And Jesse saw this, and so sent him away to work with the sheep. And so Samuel sent either Jesse or one of the other sons to go retrieve David from the field. And with the sass that he probably carried a little bit from early, he was like, I'll wait. I'll stand here and wait, so you, you better go quick. And so I don't know if he stood there for a long time or not, but eventually David came in from the field. And he didn't go home and change or took a shower or anything. He came straight from the field, and he probably smelled bad. Like, he was working with sheep. He probably looked a little bit like a sheep. Uh, he, he wasn't in his best dress, and he probably reeked. Uh, the Bible says that he was uh, ruddy, which I have no idea what that means. Uh, but he was also good-looking and had very charming eyes. So ladies, if you're looking for someone, David could be the type of guy that you're looking for. But he wasn't seen as king material. But as soon as he walked in front of Samuel, Samuel received the go-ahead from God, saying that this will be the next king of Israel, and you may anoint him as thee. And so, in time, um, David, the, the shepherd, the son of a shepherd, uh, eventually uh, was anointed and eventually became king uh, after Saul had passed. Now, during this time, a lot of things happened. Uh, one of the most famous stories that I'm sure we all know since we've been about this tall 
uh, was when, Deli- uh, when David defeated Goliath, the, the beast of a man with nothing more than a stone, a slingshot, and some faith. See, his, his glory and his renown as a person, as the next future king of Israel, rocketed. His stories of his ability to, to trust in God were told all over the place, and people started to know and recognize the name of David, and they started to get excited for their new king. But even when David took the crown, there were still plenty of hardships to come. See, David wasn't a stranger to difficulty, a stranger to, to war or bloodshed. Within the first seven to ten years of his kingship, he found himself in the city of Hebanon. Not even the city of Jerusalem, which will later be referred to as the city of David. He had to work to get it. He had to fight against a um, civil war that rose up in the defense of the, king, the past king Saul. He had to crush a rebellion and take the city for himself. To move into the palace that used to be Saul's, the one that he used to be at when he was training to become the next king of Israel. David had blood on his hands. The war never ceased. The war looked different. It's surprising to see how often David found himself at war to protect the people of Israel and to protect the values of God. But he showed that God wasn't a God to be messed with. That God was a protector of his people and stood by his people always. God didn't give up on his people ever. And even though David might have been considered a great king and a fantastic protector, he wasn't always the best Christian or the best Jewish man in that time. He often failed. I mean, he had bloodshed, blood on his hands. But he often failed in other ways. A classic example is when he committed adultery and then killed the husband to cover it up. Good job, man. Way to be, way to be a man after God's own heart on that one. But even though David was no stranger to struggling, no stranger to war, no stranger to failure, no stranger to sin, he was no stranger to repentance. And when he failed, he turned back to God and trusted that God would redeem him. And this was the pattern of David's life. And then one day, David had a dream. Jason was a simple man. He grew up in a small town in rural Kansas, and he didn't have much going on for him. He had a mom and a dad that loved him, um, and he had a few brothers and sisters, but nothing um, extravagant. Uh, his home life wasn't always the best, but he knew that he was provided for and that he was loved. He had his difficulties growing up, uh, but those are all bygones and bygones. Eventually, um, his family started going to church. They, they would go every um, Christmas or Easter, and uh, he started to kind of experience this idea of a God. And even though he knew this, this God was, was a thing, it never became his own God. He never called God his father or his Lord or his Savior when he was a child. And Jason's life was sometimes a little difficult. And when he became a teenager, he no longer was forced to go to church uh, I remember when I was young, I was forced to go to church, uh, but when he, was, when he became a teenager, his parents no longer forced him to go every Christmas and Easter, and so he stopped going altogether. 
He had a lot of hurting and broken, brokenness from his home life, and he sought to repair that through filling the void with drugs and alcohol. As a high schooler, he started going to parties, got involved in the wrong crowd, and eventually found himself consuming things that he thought would fill his broken heart and broken soul, but those things never seemed to work. And as Jason grew older, I mean, he always knew that he was a family man. He loved his mother and his father, and he loved his kids very, very much. And so when he, when he grew up, he wanted to have a, a wife. He wanted to have a family of his own, and so he did that. He, he first started out by getting a job that he loved, a job that he cared for, a job that he always wanted, his dream job. It was enough that he was comfortable, he could survive, he could put food on the table. And eventually, uh, through, his, uh, through his business, he was able to uh, meet a woman, and he fell in love. Quickly, he married her, and quickly after that, they started a family of their own. And he thought that maybe having this family would be what would it take to, to fill the hole in the void that he found within his heart. Now, Jason was still doing drugs and alcohol at this time, but at least now he had a family. But there was still something going on in his heart and his soul, but he just didn't know what it was yet. Jason didn't know what it was. But then one day something happened and things started to change. See, David was a very successful king. Known as a warrior king, he had a lot of power, a lot of wealth, and a lot of respect from his people. Other kingdoms around him feared him for his power and the power of God, Yahweh. He was a good king. Yet, there was something that was bothering David. And see, David lived in this nice house Beautiful bedroom, comfy bed. You know, he probably had a, like a pillow top mattress with an adjustable base. He had the nicest clothes. You know, he was definitely sporting Gucci. He had everything that he could ever want. He had, even though he had the responsibility of the crown, he got all the joys and the riches of the crown. And one day, he realized something. I'm just the king of Israel. I'm not the king of the world. So why am I in this amazing palace while God is outside in a tent? Up to this point in history, God resided, his, his presence resided in, in this tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was an amazing thing. It was crafted by some of the best craftsmen of the time, used some of the best materials that they could find, and the blueprints were given by God himself to the legendary leader of Israel, Moses. Moses led the people in the construction of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle went everywhere, everywhere that Israel went. God's presence. What isn't more awesome than that? But David thought that the tabernacle wasn't enough. The tabernacle had some awesome things going for it, and it had some riches of its own. But he didn't think it was enough to encapsulate the glory of God. And so he decided that he was going to build a temple, a permanent place in Jerusalem to show God's presence. And he started making plans for it until one day he was confronted by a prophet named Nathan. Nathan told him, you're not going to build this temple. David had no idea why not. Before the time of the kings, Israel was led and served by judges. 
The judges took care of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the presence of God amongst God's people. And if during all this time in the wilderness and in the time of the judges, if the tabernacle was good enough, then it's still good enough. God never once complained about his mobile hotspot. He loved it. But David still wanted something more. Yet, this dream of David's, this this dream of a temple, wasn't going to be something he ever accomplished. And he respected God's wishes in that. But Nathan told David of the promise that God gave. That if David would continue to hold to the statutes and the commandments of God, and his sons would continue to hold to the statutes and commandments of God and lead Israel as a godly nation, then that dream of a temple will one day become a reality. And so, on David's deathbed, he passed down his wish and his dream of this temple. Down to to the heir of the throne, the one that would receive the crown, Solomon. The king that we know as the wise king of Israel that served faithfully. And Solomon had every intention of making David's dream come true. And Solomon was a very wise king. He led in a time of peace and prosperity within Israel. And because of this peace and prosperity, he was able to work with the other kings and kingdoms that surrounded the nation. He was able to gain the best resources in the world, like linen and cloth and and cedar wood, to build this magnificent temple. But he was also able to gain some of the best craftsmen, to come alongside Israel's own craftsmen in forming and creating this temple. See, it wasn't just an effort of Israel, it was an effort of the world at that time. People gave to the cause because they saw the power of God in David, but they saw the invitation of God through Solomon. This temple took seven years to build. It was constructed with bronze, silver, gold, linen, cloth, stone, and the best wood that you could ever find. If he had a bank account, it was empty. His treasury would have been empty. He wanted this temple to be perfect. The seven years that it took, 183,600 men at least were enlisted to work on this big project. And even with that many men and that many skilled craftsmen in the world coming together to build this temple for God, it still took a long time. After the seven years the temple finally opened, it was consecrated by the priests and it became a gift to God's people, a gift to Israel and a gift to the world, a permanent place of God's presence that anybody could come and worship the creator, a place where the created can meet with the divine. Perfect. Amazing. Breathtaking. It was such a great temple. But there's still this question that nags at the back of my mind. Why did David never get to build his temple? Jason realized that the drugs and alcohol in his family wasn't filling the holes of his troubled youth. And he had a conversation with someone at work, and he decided that he would start attending the local church. 
Now, Jason moved from one small town, one small rural town in Kansas to another because apparently he wanted a change of scenery, but I don't know why you'd do that. There's not too much of a change of scenery. And he started getting involved in the church. Uh, he, he started coming every once in a while, like maybe once a month, and then it started becoming twice, and then he started becoming a very regular attender at his local church. And as he attended, he felt encouraged and inspired to kind of give his life over to this God that he knew from his youth. The God that he used to hear stories about, about the death and the resurrection and the birth of the Savior of the world. And the more that he got into this church thing, the more he walked away from his life of drugs and alcohol. He started replacing his relationship with addiction to his relationship with God and with others. And as he did this, he started volunteering. He started working in the children's ministry and realized that wasn't for him. He could not stay up to date with all the, uh, the energy that the kids had. So he, he moved on and tried youth ministry. And he got sick and tired of always throwing axe bombs into boys' cabins because they smelled so bad. And so he didn't last long there either. Uh, so eventually he just got plugged into a small group. And he started going to small group, and eventually he started leading his own small group. But Jason still struggled. Not necessarily with the addictions anymore, but his life wasn't perfect. He still got into arguments with his wife, he still got into arguments with his kids from time to time. Sometimes things at work didn't go well, and so he lost his cool. And sometimes he didn't do a great job at being a friend to someone else in the church. And Jason often struggled with feeling like he was enough. And even though he was at church, he still didn't feel like his life was made whole or made complete. There was still something gnawing at him, but he couldn't figure out what it was. And then one day, things started to change. David could have never built the temple. I mean, he could have, but he would have went against God's wishes. God commanded him not to build the temple, but why? Why couldn't, God, or why couldn't David build the temple? And I think the answer is pretty simple. See, David was a warrior king. He was known for his power. He was known for his ability to control and inspire his nation. And to use his nation to bring about the, the will of God. And other kings might have respected David, but they weren't necessarily David's friend. David had years of blood on his hands. And if he would have erected that temple, it would have only been a temple for Israel. It would have only been a temple for the people currently present within God's nation because everybody else would have been too fearful to come. It would have been a permanent reminder of David's power and victory in war and battle. But God isn't just the God of Israel. God is the God of the world. And so, Solomon built this temple with the commission from God, the, the go-ahead from God, because of this time of peace and prosperity. Since Solomon invited others from outside of the kingdom to work on this project, and he rebuilt relationships with kings and kingdoms, they got an invitation. His grace extended to them. 
his invitation to join him in the project, showed the world that all people are welcomed in the temple of God. All people are welcomed into the church of God. And if David would have been king, if David was the king that built that temple, that would not have been the case for the world. And so it was mandatory that David gave up his dream of building a temple and let Solomon take the reins, to trust that God would keep his promise and that that temple would be a place where all people of all walks of all nations could come and see the glory and power of God. All they needed was an invitation. Jason had a conversation with his pastor. The weight of everything that he had done, the weight of his sins, the weight of his addiction, the weight of his failures recently weighed heavy on his shoulders, and he didn't know what to think. He wanted to be the leader of his household. He wanted to be a leader within the church, but he didn't feel like he had the right. And so he had this conversation with his pastor, and the pastor very graciously told him, about the deeds that he had done that he wasn't proud of, the times that he himself was rebelled against God and how he himself isn't worthy to be a pastor, but God makes him worthy to be a pastor. And this story of the pastor's life and the things that the pastor went through really spoke to Jason. Jason realized that, yes, he might have the weight of everything that he had done, but those were not the things that made him who he was. His willingness to follow God and be in relationship with God was. See, the question that he was trying to answer, the hole in his heart was trying to just feel like he was enough. The drugs and the alcohol distracted him. His family helped a little bit with that. But God ultimately filled that hole and showed him that he was enough. Jason was enough to be a leader within his family and a leader within his church. Maybe you are Jason. Jason was some fictional character I created to invite you into. I think at some level, each one of us can, can find ourselves in the shoes of David. Each one of us has had a time where we have rebelled against God times where we ran away from him and wanted to be our own God, and we sought to fill things with things that were not godly and were just let down. Some of you are in the stage of Jason's life where he just didn't feel like he was enough, where you wanted to serve or you felt like you couldn't serve because of the weight of everything that you did in your past, and you just want to feel like you're enough. You want to be a good enough husband. You want to be a good enough wife. You want to be a good enough son. You want to be a good enough daughter. You want to be good enough to walk in the doors of the church. At some level, each one of us is Jason. And just like Jason was good enough, even though he didn't feel like he was good enough, each one of us are made good enough because of God. Each one of us are good enough to be the leader within our household, to be the leader within the church, even though we might fail, and even though we might still sin. 
And in these stories that have been shared this morning, whether it was David and Solomon's, Jason's, or your story that you're probably thinking about right now, the idea of dreams has been a part of it. And during this time of year, it's really hard not to think about dreams. Today, we are staring down the barrel of the new year. And with the new year often comes time of of New Year's resolutions, of goals and dreams, and as some of the youth say nowadays, the ins and the outs, what we're bringing into our life and what we are throwing out. That these things become our goals and our resolutions, the things that we want to accomplish in the next year. And it can be a great catalyst for change, but also during this time of year, it's hard not to reflect about the resolutions, the goals, the dreams, and the ins and the outs that we had dreamt of the year prior, recognizing those that we failed to accomplish are the ones that never came to fruition either, whether because we gave it our all and something happened or we just didn't care enough to try. But each one of these stories contains dreams. And each one of us with our New Year's resolutions, we hold on to an idea of a dream for our life. And our dreams that we have, the dreams that we experience can show what we think about our relationship with God. The dreams we seek to achieve can reveal what we truly think about our relationship with God. Whether it's with David and Solomon or Jason or your your story or your New Year's resolutions, these things all reveal what we think about God. When David built the, or desired to build the temple for God, it could have showed that he thought that God, uh, that he knew better than God, that, that God didn't know what he truly needed, and so he was going to do it for God. Maybe for him, it was, he was in just so awe and wonder of God, and he wanted to do it in a way to honor God, and in that, it shows his respect for God. For Jason, his dreams revealed that he was needing something. And he thought that need was to be in control of his life. But he soon realized that he wasn't the one who needed to be in control of his life. God did. And so his dream of of trying to lead himself and lead his family without the crux of God showed that he thought he was good enough without him. But then his eventual fall into a relationship with God, hugged and embraced by a loving father, he learned that he does need God. And for you, whatever it may be, whether it's a story that's similar to David and Solomon or or Jason, or if it's just a classic New Year's resolution, like going to the gym or getting a better job or getting married or or doing a good enough job in school, There's some sort of goal that we have, some sort of dream that we have. And those reveal what we truly think about our relationship with God. What do your goals show? What do your goals reveal about your current relationship with God? Some of these dreams, they can feel impossible. They can feel really difficult and really hard. And at the beginning of this sermon, I asked the question, what makes our dreams impossible? And I got a few things that might help us start to wrestle with that question. Our dreams become impossible when they're not centered on God. See, if we go with the idea earlier that maybe David's 
thoughts or plans for the temple were more about um, thinking that he knew better than God or to, to raise the temple maybe as a monument or another achievement of everything that he had done as king, well, then that's not centered on God and he had no business of building that temple. In Jason's story, his goals were all centered on himself. And even though he might have accomplished those goals, it didn't accomplish his true goal of filling the hole within his heart. Another way that our dreams can be impossible is when they're not within God's will. See, it wasn't within God's will for the temple of Solomon to be built by David, and so David didn't get to build it. Solomon did, because it was within God's will. Also, our dreams become impossible when we don't surrender our control to God. If God's not in control of our dreams, then surely they will be impossible. If we think that we can be the agent of change and take God out of the equation, our dreams will never happen. And David portrayed that as he trusted that God would bring upon that change through Solomon, that dream of the temple through Solomon, known today as Solomon's temple. Dreams have to be centered on God within God's will we must be willing to let go of them and surrender them to God. Or else our dreams will surely stay impossible. Maybe for some of you in this room, all of this seems impossible. Today we've talked a lot about dreams of following God. And maybe you have every intention of doing that, but you're a little distracted. And first off, I want to say, distractions happen and it's okay. Okay. God is still there, and God isn't going anywhere. But for some of you, it's hard to imagine living a life, following God, and doing everything you can for God, because right now, you are going through something hard. And you are just seeking healing. You need healing. And right now, your main dream and your main focus is just getting better. It's just getting better. We see this in Exodus 15, 26, kind of, kind of something that God speaks into this moment. In Exodus, um, it says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. God brings healing to his people. God brings healing to those who listen and obey, to those who believe and obey in his word and who he is. For those of you who are just trying to find healing, for those of you who are hurting and broken, I encourage you to believe and obey. Because he is our God who heals us. Believe and obey. For some of you, you are suffering. Healing is not the extent of what you're going through. You are suffering. Part of the Christian life is to suffer. Part of the human life is to suffer. It's, it's a consequence of sin that weighs on our shoulders. As a church, we have suffered. But we got through it. God led us through it. And God leads us through the suffering that we go through on our day to day. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, James doesn't promise that life will be free of struggle and suffering. But, but James does promise 
that there is something coming. And for those of you who are just trying to make it through the suffering, for those of you who are just trying to survive, I encourage you to endure in your faith. Endure in your faith, and God will lead you through it, and you will be blessed because of it. Blessed is the man who is steadfast under trial. Lastly, there are some of you in this room that might be even considering walking away from the faith. Being a Christian and bearing the name of Christian has weighed heavy on your shoulders, and it's not everything you expected it to be. It's hard, it's difficult, there's suffering that comes along with it, and you think that walking away from the church and joining a life that's filled where you are your own God and you can pursue whatever you want without fear of the confines of Christianity, that it will ease the brokenness in your heart and your soul, I encourage you not to do that. It may seem tempting, it might seem enticing that it's going to fix all your problems because that's what the world tells us, that it will fix our problems. But the world's just going to chew you up and spit you back out. And you're going to feel even worse than you do now. God hasn't given up on you, and you shouldn't give up on God either. We see this kind of talk in Revelation. Revelation is a book full of hope for our people that are suffering, and that are hurting, and are sometimes even considering walking away from the faith. In Revelation 14, 12, it talks about this idea, what happens when you endure, when you decide to keep the faith. Before this, it talks about the suffering that those who who follow the world face and that those who follow God are given this promise. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The Christian life is not an easy life. It is hard and it's difficult. And there will be times, if you aren't currently feeling like walking away, there will be times that you feel like walking away. But know that God calls us to follow him and to be faithful to him always. And during different seasons of our life, yeah, of course, that's going to look different. But know that there is a reward coming, and that reward is rest. We are no strangers to a broken world, full of sin and agony. And for those of you who are thinking that you're going to walk away or it's okay to walk away, I encourage you to cherish the rewards that God has promised you. God blesses those who keep his commandments and those who love him. And in every single dream that we've talked about today, there's one thing we haven't talked about. And that's the idea that these dreams don't always come free. Dreams don't always come free. There's often some sort of cost that's associated with them. And a good summary of this we can find in Galatians 1, chapter 1, verses 3 for 4, where it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. See, God had a dream, a dream of redeeming his people back into a perfect relationship with him. A dream of inviting them in and loving them and taking care of them. But even that had a cost. And the cost was high. The death of his son. 
the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if God's dreams have a cost, then our dreams surely will always have a cost as well. Those costs are going to look different. Whether it is giving up on a, on a choice of life, a, a lifestyle that you have committed yourself to for years, whether it's walking away from your relationship with addiction, or walking away from something that you know is taking away from your relationship with God. Or even in the classic examples of New Year's resolutions, you gotta stop eating the cheeseburger if you wanna start losing weight. There's something you have to sacrifice if you want your dream to become possible. Dreams do not come free. Even God's dreams don't always come free. The beginning of the sermon, I asked a simple question. What makes our dreams impossible? And the answer is very simple. Our dreams only become impossible when they're not God's dreams. Our dreams are only impossible when we don't invite God into our dreams. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence and your steadfastness in this life that can be full of hurting. You're a God who is present and a God who cares at all times, always. I pray for each one of us in this room, myself included, that as we face this new year, as we look down the barrel, that we decide that we give a life to following you and that we are able and willing to let go of our dreams and give you control, control of our dreams and our lives in a way to, to, to follow you with everything that we have. I pray that each one of us here are blessed, blessed in your name and encouraged to do your work even when we don't feel like we're enough. You are our God and you make us enough. Thank you. Amen.